Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Whatever you've got on this weekend, don't miss a moment in the world of sport. Wherever you are around the country, we've got you covered. This is SENZ. Yes, a very good afternoon and welcome into Sunday Afternoon Sport here with Mark Watson on SENZ. The telephone number is 0800 150 811. 0800 150 811. You can text us here on 8833. We will look at the Tour de France this afternoon. We will talk some motorsport. We will talk the ashes. Hopefully we'll talk some athletics and some darts as well as some rugby. We want you, though, to be a big part of the programme. I know a lot of people are going to text us here on 8833, but would love you to phone the programme on 0800 150 As I've always said, I think talkback is a better experience when you phone the programme. Now, the big news is there is a new competition being formed between Sansa and the Six Nations. This is going to start taking place in 2026. It'll happen in the existing July and November international rugby windows. It'll have the four nations from Sansa and the six nations, nations, that makes sense, and there will be two additional teams that will be invited. And you'd imagine that come 226, more than likely probably be Fiji and Japan. There will be a second tier competition that will be developed to facilitate promotion and relegation from 2030. Now, what this does, it puts greater weight on some of these test matches. The end of the year, two of the All Blacks go on, and when these Northern Hemisphere sides come here in June and July. Often, there have been one-off matches or two tests. Um, Northern Hemisphere in June haven't always sent their best teams because of the fatigue of having come off a long club competition. That's not the case with the All Blacks, where we send a strong team on the end of the year tour. But suddenly there is greater weight and greater meaning on these games. Do you like this new format? Is this what rugby needs? It'll be held every two years to allow for the Rugby World Cup in alternative years and also the British and Irish Lions Tour. There's parts of me that like the idea of this, but does it 
start to become a little bit tiresome. Play Wales maybe in one test a year, England in one test a year. I would personally just like to have us tour one country annually and have midweek games and play three tests at the end of the year. And I'd love one of the Northern Hemisphere sides to come here in June and July, play three tests with some midweek games. And go back to the old school tours. I would love New Zealand to tour South Africa once every four years and every other four years South Africa come here and play us. You remember the sense of nationalism when we finally won a series in South Africa in 1996. South Africa's only series victory in New Zealand was 1938. We're never ever, by the sounds of it, going to get to tour South Africa and play three tests again and vice versa. And there's something quite sad about that. Because when you look back through the history of New Zealand rugby, a lot of people always talk about the 1956 tour when the South Africans toured here. I'd love the Irish to do what they did last year, come back down here in the future and try and win a series. What did that do for Irish rugby? What did that do for their players in terms of creating legend? But it is a professional era and it is all about the money now. Do you like this new format? Is there an alternative? 0800-150-811 is the number if you wish to join the programme. What does it also mean going forward for broadcasters like Sky Television when their broadcast deals are up? I'd imagine this is going to be a little bit more enticing for bigger international broadcasters, the likes of possibly the Amazons, possibly the Netflix. Possibly Apple. How nervous will broadcasters like Sky be with this new proposal? Or do they believe they will have the financial announced to re-sign and this is incredibly exciting for them? whole lot of stakeholders. Some will be positive. Some will be negative about the prospect of this occurring in 2026. Now, some people have not been overly happy by this. South African journalist Brendan Nell dubbed it a death blow for rising nations with this new 12-team competition. He wrote, the proposed World League concept launched by Sanzar and the Six Nations today underlines the commercialisation of test rugby by investment groups. It deals a death blow to those rising nations like Georgia and Chile who will only face Tier 1 nations from 2030. And that was a common viewpoint with another organisation known as Type 5 Rugby simply tweeting the death of Tier 2 Rugby. Yeah, it basically means that for four years those emerging countries will not get to play 
the likes of Italy, Ireland, Wales, etc. And what we should be reminded of is that Georgia have beaten both Italy and Wales in recent times. I wonder too how the Six Nation countries might feel if in 2030, let's just say Wales or Scotland, were to be relegated and suddenly weren't involved. Fiji and Japan, for some reason, had better a better competition across the Southern Hemisphere test window, across the Northern Hemisphere test window, and when it was all said and done, they finished 12th and they get relegated, Georgia comes up. don't think that's going to go down too well, is it? 0800 is the number if you do want to have your say here on the programme. Hi, Dean. Yeah, mate, very, very interesting. I, I, mean, I always was led to believe that, that the tier status thing sort of came from how you finished in the World Cups. So I don't know, but I, I honestly believe they're, they're running scared because we all know that it's like what's happened in golf. Money controls everything. So they can talk about and have as many glorified meetings saying this, this and this and this, but as soon as Japan get involved in super rugby and as far as I'm concerned the sooner the better and we can get different players helping sustain New Zealand rugby players in New Zealand because that's our biggest problem. We can't afford to keep them. Lester Feinuk who is a classic example and he's one of many that have gone way too early and I don't blame them whatsoever. Yeah, look, a couple of points there. I, I mean, I, just just, and we're sort of going off on a slight tangent, but with Super Rugby, if you're playing Super Rugby, I think you should be a play, able to play across any Super Rugby team and still be eligible for the All Blacks. So if you go and play for New South Wales, so be it, because New South Wales might be able to pay you a little bit more and that'll then keep you in the game here in New Zealand longer. You're still every week playing New Zealand sides, you're still in the selectors, you're still playing you know, here, and I, I've got no problem with that. Look, incorporating Japan into Super Rugby, that's still independent of the club competition in Japan but I understand what you're saying it's like how do we involve the Japanese um, and again under that same thing well if you're playing in Japan but Japan's playing in a New Zealand based or a Sanzar based competition uh, so be it I think what I was getting at there was it's just purely money hmm. you know they're trying to TV rights the IPL for an example it's just the TV rights for that and the viewership that the Indians have that's what makes it so successful and they're bought into America now, you know, the, the Mumbai LA team or whatever they're called, you know so I can see just for an example, the Panasonic Highlanders and if people start watching, they're after the money for the viewer watching because how else do they get money to fund everything? Well they Where don't, does it yeah, no it is and, and, and cricket's very lucky that you've got a population of a billion people in India and you've got a large Indian population around the world so cricket's very blessed that they just happen to it'd be a bit like, you know, if, if they decide, you know, I'd imagine if China or something decided to start a table tennis league and I don't want to stereotype but it's a big game over there then, you know, table tennis players are suddenly going to make a fortune because, you know, they've got the world's largest population who are interested and can tap into it but my problem with this is, yes it's all about the money, isn't it? Money talks, it's a professional game, I just still don't see a lot of it flowing down through to the grassroots in this country I still just see the players making a lot of money and I still see the game being very top heavy 
you know, you've only got to talk to Steve Devine about the state of um, facilities and major clubs around the country here in New Zealand. And so it's like, well, it's our game. Yes, you're capitalising, you're commercialising it, but where's the money going? I totally agree. And the other example of that is there's a very limited pathway for coaching into club rugby. And I looked at the, the senior teams here in Dunedin, the names in the paper, and I, I mean... I couldn't see one Highlander playing club rugby this weekend. No, no, I mean, it's but it's absolutely appalling, Dean. That's what I'm talking about. I mean, we've dumbed it down. Players these days aren't allowed to play because they, they get too tired. Um, and, and like I say, the only headline we hear these days is around the All Blacks and what's happening at an international level. You know, we just saw our under-20s get absolutely pumped by the French. Um, this is not just something that's happened this year. It's happened in the last four or five years. You know, we look at our all-black team over the last three or four years. We haven't been playing particularly well. We look at the lack of depth in Highlanders rugby. We look at how poor Auckland still is. Um, you, you know, the game the game when you stand back is in crisis, Dean, and yet the administrators still have their head in the sand, still somehow believe that by just bringing more money into the game um, and paying the players more, everything's going to be okay and everything's about the bottom line. And it's not, and it's not, Dean. And it's, you know, if we're not careful, we're going to end up like Wales. We're going to go from being this great rugby nation and then suddenly in the 1980s, they just tanked and became a minnow. And I don't think they've re- really ever fully recovered from it. And I sort of sense that we're, you know, we're going down that path. Oh, and like you said earlier with, um, I agree, 100% agree. And Georgia, for example, are trying really, really hard to achieve what a lot of people would think was non impossible in the in the rugby game. And yet they're under 20 side. They're doing very well. They beat Wales, didn't they? they yeah, they, they did. They beat somebody. And look, and I think, Dean, yeah. with, uh, I think, Dean, too, with Georgia, like I think there's more promise in Georgia becoming a rugby powerhouse probably got more potential than what Italy. Italy really haven't shown a lot. Maybe this last Six Nations was the first time in a long time where I think we started to see a little bit of parity, but they've been incredibly disappointing for years. They've never really evolved. I mean, I was there at Eden Park for that opening game of the World Cup in 87 when we, you know, Kerwin scored that great try and the All Blacks decimated them, and it really hasn't changed. I mean, we can sit here and romanticise what's happening up in the islands, but Tonga, Samoa... A part of it is because of the corruption administration level up there, but you just sense they're just not going to get it right for whatever reason. Um, you know, Romania were a really good rugby nation. I remember them back in 1987, Richard Zimba scoring that great try at Eden Park. What's happened to the Romanians? You know, is that where the future expansion of rugby is? It's Georgia, it's Romania. Uh, look, you still want to encourage the Pacific Islands. Fiji clearly starting to do some good things. But you know, the game's got to continue to grow. And the biggest problem is the Northern Hemisphere have protected the likes of Wales, Scotland and their own backyard too much. And it'd be fascinating, one at 2.30, when they do have promotion relegation, how they'll handle potentially a Wales, a Scotland, hell, even in England. Who knows? I can't see it being the All Blacks. I can't even really see it being the South Africa. Potentially it could be in Australia, I guess. One of those top historic nations being demoted to a second-tier competition. They'll hate it, but it might actually be the best thing that happens to world rugby because we then know we've actually got some nations beyond those that are established. Hey, Dean, lovely to have you on the programme. As always, nice way to kick the show off. 20, what is it, 15 minutes after 12, 0800 150811. Is this the right way for rugby to go? 
basically a global competition, points up for grabs. Northern Hemisphere sides come here in June and July. We still play the rugby championship with inside of it. And then the end of the year games, the Southern Hemisphere teams travel to the North. Those tests have points and we determine a winner when it's all said and done. Is that the best model going forward? Or are you like me, where I'd like to go back to, you know, playing the Bledisloe Cup, probably getting rid of the rugby championship, having a Northern Hemisphere side or potentially two sides coming here to play three tests, midweek games. Now, we travel to South Africa once every four years. They travel here once every four years. We play them in three tests. Bring back less is more. 0800 150811 is the number. It's text that's coming. Hi, Watto. Uh, Under-20s got beaten up uh, by a big, brutal French forwards. The under-20s, Georgia beat Argentina. I've just lost that. Hang on a sec. Just beaten Argentina. And Italy beat South Africa in the under-20s. Would be great to see three tests and midweek game tours here. Yeah, look, I was just thinking about it. You know, wouldn't it be great that... We had one of the Northern Hemisphere sides like England come here, three tests, a couple of leading games for them. They brought their <coughs> dirt trackers and went back and played not super rugby sides but NPC sides so that there was some real um, opportunity to have some real tribalism. You know, bring it back, Hawke's Bay, take on England, Manawatu, counties, uh, you know, Tasman. I just think it would be brilliant. I think the whole those towns and those regions just get highly engaged. And then, you know, we might then go into a South we might then go and play three tests in Australia. Or Australia might come here for three further tests. You know, I remember the days when we toured Australia, you remember guys like Mike Clamp. Um you know, but in the nineteen eighties. And suddenly I don't know, it just it just has greater weight and meaning on it to win a test series, to beat New Zealand. It's such a big carrot for other countries. I, I just feel like we play South Africa too regularly now. I can't even remember the results from the last three or four years, but I do remember the 96. In fact, I can almost name that all-black side that took the field in that series. You know, you go back to the 1956 tour. And equally, the South Africans are talking about the 76 tour. And don't kid yourself, I mean, we were playing the referees that day and we were never going to win that series. You can't have a team called the All Blacks win an apartheid South Africa where it's all about white supremacy. Have a wee think about it. Uh, 22 minutes after 12. Hi, Mark. Hey, Mark, how are you? Good, thank you. Good. Now, I know you really want Australia to lose the Ashes test, and me being Australian, of course, I want Australia to win, so I'm open to your sensitivity about that. But I'd like to get your opinion on an absolute howler call from the umpires last night that I was listening to on SENZ when there's an English batsman called Ben Duckett, and he yep. got caught by Mitchell Stark. Yep. And Erasmus, one of the umpires, called Duckett back because to him... Uh, Mitchell Stark wasn't in control of his body when he caught the ball. Now, that, besides myself, has been savaged by cricket fans around the world, but I think it was pretty well summed up with regard to uh, expressing disapproval on Erasmus' decision, where Aaron Finch, who's a Australian, former Australian captain, said, that's shocking. 
for a guy that's six feet five to make good ground like that and get your hands around it, slide on your knees and get up in one motion, I'd say you're pretty well in control of your body, he said on Channel 9's coverage. And then Faf Duplessis got on Twitter and said, how is that not out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, but look, what just annoys me about the Australians is we had the Steve Smith, which was a controversial catch to get rid of Joe Root. I mean, if you look at that, you could argue that was out. Then you go back to the World Test Match thing where Cameron Green's catch was as controversial as anything and probably wasn't a catch. I don't hear these same Australians jumping up and down and crying about that. In fact, they could find some way of justifying it and saying they were completely correct. So look, was he out? Probably. The reality is I am just sick and tired of the Australians jumping up and down and crying every time something doesn't go their way. They're the biggest bloody hypocrites on the planet when it comes to cricket, Mark. I genuinely mean that. The Steve Smith catch against Joe Root, Joe Root probably not out. You know, go back, have a look at the Cameron Green catch. It's just the Australians are just your classic bloody bullies. You know, they jump up and down when an English batsman or an English player absolutely, utterly um, sledges Usman Khawaja, but just forget that they wrote the entire book on just nastiness in the middle of the pitch. Yeah, well, it's just that it seems to me that cricket officials and administrators really need to streamline their approach because it seems like they don't know what they're talking about with regard to they're saying one guy's out because of this reason, another guy's not out because of this reason, like the Duckett situation. They just need to straighten it all out. Well, what do I want to see, Mark, in all seriousness? Like, and I do, I just get so frustrated with the Australians and their cricket. I just find them the world's great bullies and the world's great hypocrites and just a bunch of little crybabies most of the time, but... Show the damn thing at full speed from five different angles. If it looks like a catch, it is a catch. If it doesn't look like a catch, it's not a catch. Same with scoring tries in rugby and rugby league. I agree. Because I think most people can handle that. If you see it at full speed and it looks like a catch and you fought from five different angles, you know, it is. But if you slow it down enough, you're starting to find reasons why it's not out. That's right. But it's been amazing because we've had about three tests. The last three tests, we've had controversial catches. Two, two, two in favour of Australia and one against the Aussies. Yeah, well, I mean, be it Australia, New Zealand, England playing whoever, I think the cricket administrators and the officials just need to pull their heads in, come up with a sensible approach to judging if a catch is get taken or not and go with that because there's just too many controversial situations like this where they're making dumbass rulings that don't do much to um, deem the game fair or yeah, but when it, but Mark, quite like the quality of the game. But Mark, go right back to the underarm incident, mate. The Australians have never made cricket fair. i got no sympathy for them. I've got absolutely zero sympathy for them, mate. None whatsoever. This is a country who made Chopper Reed a national hero and Ned Kelly a national hero. It sort of sums them up, to be perfectly bloody honest. Hey, thanks, Mark. Lovely to have you on the programme. Hi, Graham. Oh, g'day. How are you, Mark? Good, thanks. <clears throat> You're just on this uh, rugby new global season, the 2026, that it starts? Yes. Yeah, I know. I was on the phone to someone. But, yeah, no, I don't know. Well, what's your opinion? I just want to uh, just... Because <laughs> I, I sort of, well... You never know nowadays. Well, what it just ends up meaning, mate, is we're going to play these Northern Hemisphere sides in sort of one-off tests. I, I'm old school. I, I'd like to see what we had with Ireland last year where they'd come here and play three tests. And I'd like to see the Dirt Trackers tour again and they might end up playing the counties, the Manawatus, MPC sides, not Super Rugby sides. I'd like us to make the end of the year tours three test series against Wales, you know, back at Carter Farms Park or the Millennium or playing France in three tests. 
Um, you know, and you might have a couple of warm-up games against the likes of the Italys and some of these sort of so-called, still what I would describe as lesser nations. I, 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 you know, what this basically means is we're never going to tour South Africa again. We're never going to get a chance to win a series in South Africa again. You're never going to get a chance to win a, South, a series here again. And yet, you know, we see how big and popular the British and Irish Lions are in that format. And, and that's what I'd like. And just keep the Rugby World Cup as the Rugby World Cup. Yeah, yeah, I'd like to see more tours. I know it's, a, um, you know, it's a very much a, a core into the wilderness. Um, as far as a lot of people are, const- are concerned, you know, they say, oh, you know, and I'd, you know, I'd love to see the provincial teams playing. You know, that's one thing that hacked me off in 2005. The, the previous to the last Lions tour was that they didn't play Canterbury. You know, <clears throat> it was the first time. And I always remember Andrew Mertens played his last game for Canterbury against Marlborough in a midweek game before the test here. And, um, you know, and, you know, that was always a traditional game. You know, mm. Canterbury's one of the like Auckland, Wellington, you know, Waikato, all those teams, but they did play most of the others. But, you know, you, you miss out on that. Um, yeah, it just, yeah, I, I just find it just inexplicable. And, you know, you've got a lot of good players around, you know, who, you know, look at midweek teams and, you know, people go, oh, they're not a test player. But you know that they'd be as hard as nails and, um, you know, they would form a pretty formidable midweek teams and, and on tours of South Africa. You know, I remember oh, yeah, but that, you, you, like, that 96 team that went over there that you're talking about. You know, I remember the players that went on that tour. You know, they were some great players in the midweek team. And, you know, it's just, yeah, it's... Well, but yeah. you, you're still good enough to go. I mean, they take 34, 36 players anyway on these end-of-the-year tours. Oh, I mean, yeah. 23 only start. So you've got 13 sitting there that aren't going to be part of a squad. So why not, you know, what rather than having a New Zealand A or what do they call it, the All Black 15 now, you know, just just go back. They've got to actually start asking the fans, you know, what the fans want. But everything's now driven by television. The only people bloody well benefiting are the players and the damn players association and the administrators who get to put in a figure on the bottom line. You know, while, you know, club rugby and as we've discussed, week in, week out just continues to become irrelevant. And yeah, exactly, but... Well, yeah, by and large, even though, you know, down here it's reasonably good, but, well, they say, it, you know, most of it is, but there are still clubs that are struggling right throughout the country. But one good thing I did learn a few weeks ago, they had Canterbury playing all their home games during the day this year. Um, that's a, that That's the first time in... I mean, you never well, get cl- 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 clearly, the Northern Hemisphere no longer watching our MPC either, <laughs> mate. So they don't have to worry <laughs> no, about putting. They don't have to worry about putting no. it on at a, at a viewable time because the numbers are probably so bloody poor. But look, it is good actually. In all seriousness, mate, finally starting to think about the fan here rather than just everybody overseas. Look after the fan here. I mean, we it know that it, we know how cold it can get in Christchurch in winter, and it is still a bit of a makeshift stadium down there. So it's just common sense, isn't it, to have it during the day. Allow the unions to maximise the gate takings and the damn revenue. And there's one game in Rangiora too. So, you know, so, uh, yeah, I know the guy pushed for it um, on the part of the setup at Rugby Park. But, yeah, no, um, but, yeah, but, but that, that's another thing. I mean, the, the obsession with night rugby is, is based purely on TV and TV watching. And I know we've discussed it for 12 years since you're on radio sport, but, I mean, um, yeah, it's just, yeah, it has a counterproductive, because um, not as many kids get taken along, you know, to, 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 see, to see for rugby playoffs, for instance, which is, that season's just finished. But that, that you know, people are reluctant to take eight and nine-year-olds mm. 
two two stadiums like um, Orange Theory or whatever. It's changed its name again. So um, and all the other ones, and even Forsyth Bar's freezing apparently, even though it's got a roof on it. But um, yeah, that's nah, the break. Well, Graham, we've just got to start looking after the fans more, mate. We do in this country. Hey, thank you for your call. Just a text coming in. Um, what's the number to call? I'm not sure if that's um, Adam, who we're about to go to in a minute. Telephone number's 0800 150811. And then someone's saying, wow, you wouldn't be on the air without an Aussie company backrolling you. Yeah, I get all of that. What's that got to do with me having an opinion about the Australian cricket team? What, I become like every other media person and I'm bored? Well, yes, we bankroll by it, but we've got a New Zealand audience. We're a New Zealand company. There's a lot of great things I like about Australian sport. Absolutely, I do. But the Australian cricket team, uh, uh, they're the best side in the world, but they do it with very, very little. Uh, they do it with – they're not exactly humble, and they don't do it with yeah, a, a level of humility. Hi, Adam. Hi, Mark. I'll just back you up on that text. I don't know why you've got such a big chip on your shoulder about this Australian cricket team. Can you tell me where New Zealand's rated in test cricket at the moment? What's that got to do with it, Adam? It means that you, you, like, you get on here and when you're working for Radio Sport, you're, um, you're talking about oh how you hate Smith and you hate Warner. These guys are the best team in the world. Show some respect, you must. I'm not going to. Hey, Adam, I'm not. I'm not got, yeah, no, Adam, Adam, I've got a chip on both shoulders. I'm well balanced, mate. Hey, listen to me, Adam, though, mate. It doesn't no, mean not, you can be mate. the. You can be no, the. Yeah, not. but come on, you can be the you best, mate. You use sandpaper to cheat. You bowl underarms. You've got a Smith. You've you've got a captain previously. We will break your effing arm, and then the moment somebody else does it to you, do you jump up and down like a bunch of crybabies? Oh, that was a catch, and hell, what an appalling decision by Erasmus. Yet, hey, two days ago, none of you guys were talking about the appalling decision that Smith takes a catch. Oh, no, that's perfectly legit. You nothing to do with the test match against uh, the Indians in that World Test Championship. My point is, Adam, it doesn't matter whether you're best side in the world. That doesn't mean that suddenly that's a get out of jail. That somehow gives you a free license to be a bunch of animals and a bunch of mongrels. Can, I, can you just listen to me talk for a second, mate? Yeah, please do. I'm bringing up your radio show. We'll have enough of your, your whatever crap you're talking. How many Australians have been to the High Court in England for a case of match fixing? What's that got to do with it? What, well, what do you call sandpaper gate? That's not match fixing? Well, have you not, not read, have you not read the, have you not read the, have you not, yeah, and, and, and Adam, 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 was he found guilty? He actually well, went to court for perjury. Nothing else, Adam. Perjury. Oh well. And was enough. he found not guilty, that? Adam? Has New Zealand got a Test match in the next five years, or is this not? They're going to play Bangladesh and Sri Lanka at home again. Probably, mate. But at least to do it with a level of integrity. Well, Stephen Smith has integrity. Hey, He's Adam, probably one Adam, of the greatest batsmen in the world at the moment. Adam, why, if you love Australia so much, why are you living in Christchurch? Because I'm married to a Kiwi. And see what, and it works out better to live here than Australia. Good on you. Good Why are you working for an Aussie? I'm not working for an Aussie company, mate. What, Hutchie doesn't own, you, you own your company? He might do it, mate. I'm a contractor. I don't work for him. Well, mate, you're on his radio station. What's that got to do with it, mate? I've got a New Zealand audience. Most New Zealanders will back me up, mate. Yeah. I'm not going to well, sit we'll here and be a sycophant around, around the disgusting behaviour of your Australian cricket team and the complete hypocrisy. Hey, mate, you talk about rugby all the time. 
Rugby's dead. I no say it's dead too, Adam. I'm sitting here saying it's dead, mate. I'm the I'm the guy that's telling everybody well, it's dead, Adam. Well, Australia, it's cricket's one of the most popular games in the world. Australia's on top. We gave you a chance to go over to Australia and play. You shit the bed so far that you probably never play at the MCG and Adam, again. And, 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 up to it. and Adam, and I said that, and I came on this program and said it's appalling that New Zealand get this opportunity against Australia and waste it. We play England, we don't go over there, we don't have a proper build-up and we don't take it seriously. I have said this, Adam, that playing Australia in cricket should be treated like our Olympic Games. We should be going over there, throwing every resource to try and beat the Aussies and Aussies, Adam. Okay? I've got no problem with that. I've got no problem admitting that rugby in this country is absolutely dead. It's too top-heavy and all of those other reasons, Adam. I'm more than happy to criticise New Zealand sport, Adam, but I'm not going to sit here and give Australian cricket some get-out-of-jail-free pass because they're the best side in the world. Yes, you're the best side in the world. Nobody doubts that, but you do it with you do it just with such a poor level of sportsmanship. Oh, and the All Blacks never cross... They never sort of toe the line of fairness to win, do they? Well, I, I don't know. You show me some of the controversial moments. No more than any other international side, mate. At least, we, at least we've got a bit of integrity. At least we don't, you know, we're not sitting there constantly cheating. We're not sitting there abusing the opposition. And in the moment the opposition abused us, crying like a bunch of little girls. I mean, you guys wrote the book when it comes to sledging. Go right back to the days of the Chapel Brothers, mate. You wrote the book. Oh, Everybody right. else is reading it, Adam. Well, what about all this stuff? About hey, Adam, the Adam, 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 why, Adam, why are Chopper Reed and Ned Kelly national heroes in your country, mate? It sums you up. Well, I'm a New Zealander, mate. I've got a house oh, in New oh, No, you're not, race. my good man. You are clearly not a New Zealander. Oh, what are you going to play? You're going to play the Lay Down Sally song again, mate, to cut me off because you don't like what I'm saying? Oh, how is Sally getting on these days? Well, I don't know. She's probably living somewhere on sunny, new, new, sunny Australia where it's nice and warm. Oh, it is, mate. I'd go there tomorrow if I could myself, Adam. I'd just be into your new... I don't think you'd be welcome, mate. Oh, no, I, I would. They'd love me. It's called, it's called evolution, mate. I'd increase the IQ. I don't think tall enough to get through the uh, customs. Hey, can I ask you this? Do you still have to have a record to get into Australia? Record? Yeah, you know, like a criminal record to get in. They do ask me sometimes wow. when I go through customs, do I have a record? And I go, do I still need one? Well, I don't know, mate. I've been back for a while. You're the one telling the story. I don't know, Adam. I'm just sitting here with a big smile on your face, living rent-free inside your head, mate. Thank you for your call. 0800-150811. God, I love the Aussies, isn't it? Oh, we're owned by an Australian company, so therefore I've got to make sure that I speak like I'm an Australian. No, we're not. We've got a New Zealand audience. I'm a New Zealand broadcaster. I've got licence to speak freely. It's called freedom of speech. I know that we're slowly diminishing that in this country, but it's called freedom of speech. Does anyone disagree with me here on the Australian cricket team? Oh, you know, Steve Smith crying up. That wasn't the first time they'd used damn sandpaper. That was just the first time they got caught. Go and have a look at Mitchell Stark's bowling record prior to sandpaper gate and then have a look at it afterwards. 0800 150 Give us a text us here on double eight double three. Somehow we've got onto the cricket. Our previous caller somehow thinks that just because you're the number one side in the world, that is get out of jail in regards to respect, dignity, sportsmanship and some sort of level of decorum and also that you're allowed to somehow be morally corrupt. It's not how it works. Because if you took that model and transferred it across society, we would have, and some would say it already exists, we would have a judicial system which is not fair. And you've got to have a judicial system that is fair, otherwise society falls over. Um, 
what we've got here is, I'll get back to the rugby stuff. A free sandpaper for Adam. I've got some here in Christchurch. That comes from Craig. Someone's saying, I love you, Watto. And then I, I'm not sure if it's Craig that said, what a tedious tirade of cliches and stereotypes. Like, people don't really realise what I'm doing. All I'm doing, mate, is acting like the Australians act. So we're talking about the Australian cricket team. I just fall into the Australian cricket team mode. And my point is the Australians are very good at giving it. They're terrible at taking it, aren't they? And I think that has been highlighted. Every single former Australian cricketer jumping up and down about the catch that Mitchell Stark took on the boundary. And it was given not out. They all got nothing to say on the Scott Boland catch against India. They've got nothing to say about the Stephen Smith catch against Joe Rode a couple of days ago. Nothing. They don't want to know about it, mate, because it was all legitimate. Jump up and down at the Australian bowler over uh, the English bowler over the sledging of Usman Khawaja. <laughs> the Australians wrote the book when it came to sledging. Absolutely wrote the book. Some of the things they have said on a cricket field are absolutely appalling. You can bring up match fixing and you can talk about the Chris Keynes and stuff like that. Chris Keynes was never found guilty of match fixing. Chris Keynes appeared in court for what, what they call for perjury and then he was found not guilty on those charges. There was lots of innuendo back in the day around Mark War. I think it was Mark War. Apologies. Um, I'd need to check that. Just my opinion. I think it was, was it, anyway. There was there was a couple of the Australian cricketers. I think Shane Warne's definitely one of them. There was some murmurings around, um, you know, having conversations with people around ground conditions and you've only got to Google that. So, I mean, there's lots of innuendo out there. It doesn't make anybody guilty of anything. Um, what else have we got here? Um, <laughs> I love this. Yeah, hi, Wado. And the rest of the Aussie bowlers and coaching staff didn't know Sandpaper Gate was going on. Yeah, right. I mean, it's just ridiculous, isn't it? It's a bit like when, um, it's a bit like when um, uh, our, uh, Smith, our All Black halfback, and you know, here's a little, um, here's a little uh, rendezvous in the public toilets at an airport, and apparently the other All Blacks didn't know what was going on. Like, come on, mate, you young men, you blokes. We've all been in those sports teams. Of course they knew what was going on. Hi, Watto. Uh, good on you for getting into the sycophantic Aussie. You're right above the Aussie cricket team. You tell it like it is, and I'm proud hearing you. Regards, Albany Steve. Hey, that, that's nice. Thank you, guys. I do appreciate Hey, look, mate, I, I'm just not going to sit here and excuse the Australian behaviour. I'm not. Uh, Mark, now... Let's get back to the let's get back to the rugby story. Um, so there's talk about well, it's going to happen in 2026. A combination between Sansar and the Six Nations, the two test windows, which is June and July and November. There is going to be some meaning on it. They're going to basically have a biannual competition to determine the top ten amongst those twelve countries. There'll be two invitation teams outside of Argentina, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and the Six Nations sides. More than likely, initially, there'll probably be Fiji and Japan. Great, but I'd still rather go back to the traditional format of midweek games, three test tours, and have some real meaning on it. What it basically says is that going forward, we're never ever going to tour South Africa again. We're never going to play them in three tests. 
0800-150-811 is the number. You can text us here on 8833. OK, it is coming up to eight minutes away from one. We'll talk the Tour de France after one o'clock uh, on the programme. Ron Cheatley, the godfather of cycling in this country. He's going to give just people out there not familiar with the sport, how it all works, uh, how you sort of select your teams. We'll also just have a look at the first stage as well and talk about the two New Zealanders that are taking part. Look, for everything I say about the Australian cricket team, and don't get me wrong, I, I, I don't feel... Um, negatively about a lot of Australian sport. I just don't have a lot of time for the Australian cricket team. I, I never have. Uh, there's a lot of other things in Australian sport that I genuinely do love and uh, have a lot of admiration for and wish that we could follow their models, swimming being one of them. Uh, but look, this text here probably sums it up. Hate them or love them, they still win. And you cannot deny that. They do know how to win. They just win ugly. But they do know how to win the Australians. But in the funny kind of way, you've got to have your villains too. You can't just have your heroes. And I think when it comes to cricket, I think Australia and India are the villains. When it comes to tennis, right where longly, I think that most people would perceive Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal as the heroes and probably um, would look at... Uh, I'm just having a mental block. Who's the other... Th- um, Nadal, Federer, and... Yeah, Djokovic. Oh, God, I'm just having one of those moments. Just a mental block. Djokovic, and Djokovic would be... Oh, how do you forget that? Djokovic, in this game, uh, Djokovic would be considered to be the villain. Uh, rightly or wrongly. You can't have three heroes. Um, so, yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it just frustrates the hell out of me that the Australians are first to jump up and down the moment anything goes against them, forgetting they actually wrote the book. There was the great um, sledge in Indian in Australia, and I'm th- just trying to remember who the cricketer was, English batsman, and it was who was the Australian umpire. Boy, my my mind's just gone fuzzy at the moment. Uh, who was it? Who was it? I'll think about it, and we might come back after one o'clock and dress it. Uh, but it was a great line. Um, batsman gets an edge. Healy was the wicketkeeper. Catch is taken, not out. Australians are absolutely furious that he doesn't walk, absolutely furious that he's not given out. And he just simply turned around and said, win in Rome, win in Rome, chaps. Basically saying, win in Rome, do as the Romans do. <laughs> hey, I'm just simply doing what you guys would have done. Oh, I just thought it was one of the great lines. But look, Australian creators never endeared themselves to anybody, have they? And the Under Arm incident, Sandpaper Gate, you go back to the umpire in the 86 87 test um, when Hadley and Danny Morrison uh, had the Australians in all sorts of trouble. I think the entire Allen Border career was never given out LBW at home. You know, we won a test series in Tasmania in 2011 and Michael Clark didn't even have the good grace to actually acknowledge the New Zealand cricket team. You know, Michael Clark, um, you know, threatening to break a player's arm and using all sorts of expletives. Right, coming up after one o'clock, we'll change it up. We will talk the Tour de France. Find, get, find out a little bit about yeah, team selection. Um, UAE will be in the yellow jersey on day two, but they probably won't want to hold on to that yellow jersey this week. Why? Why don't you want the yellow jersey in the first week? We'll ask all of those questions of Ron Cheatley up after one. 
Men at Work. Now, one of the great Australian things. There you go. There's something positive about Australia. Great song. That goes out to my good mate Adam in Christchurch. <laughs> um, just just a few texts on the Aussies. Someone's still reminding me that in 2000 when we won that test match in Tasmania against the Aussies, they gave the man of the match to Shane Warne. But I think when we won the Rugby League World Cup in 2008, they gave man of the match to Darren Lockyer. Oh, it just sums up the Aussies, doesn't it? Anyway, always a good bit of banter. Love you, Adam. Good to have you on the programme, big guy. You, you're probably one of the more intelligent Australians too, the fact that you're living over here, Adam. <laughs> oh, you can never give the Aussies enough, can you, mate? You can never give the Aussies enough. Anyway, let's change it up. Let's talk a real sport. Let's talk the sport of cycling. Let's talk the Tour de France. The godfather of New Zealand cycling, Ron Cheatley, joins us on the programme. Ron, good afternoon. Welcome. Hi, Mark. How are you? Very good, thank you. Now, I understand this morning when I spoke to you, you were watching a replay of Stage 1 of this year's Tour de France in an unconventional first stage because it was a very hilly stage where historically the opening stage generally tends to be a flat, fast-finishing sprinter's stage. For sure. Like, really different this year, Mark. Like, what a hell of a stage it was. Um, Yeah, it was pretty lumpy. Um, And as you quite rightly say... Normally, the first two or three stages are quite flat. The sprinters are nice and fresh, and they show their stuff. But today, it was really the GC riders, uh, those that are going for the overall general classification. They're the ones that sort of shone really early. And in fact, there was only like 14 in the front group. And you could say that all of those guys that were there, including last year's winner, Jonas uh, Vingegaard and Taja Bogatia, uh and Victor Lafay, three of the favourites were certainly up in that group. And the, and the really, really good thing for the Kiwis is that Corbin Strong led the next group in only 33 seconds behind in 15th place. Fantastic ride. Yeah, unbelievable. And I want to touch on the two New Zealand riders shortly. Uh, look, um, we, we've seen very much a dominating opening day by the UAE team, uh, which is the team that George Bennett rides for. He's not riding in the tour this year. Um, won by, uh, well, the Yates brothers first and second and then um, Pogacar finishing in third place. Will they want to hold on to that yellow jersey this week? I would think they'd probably want to get rid of it, or they won't necessarily spend too much energy trying to defend it this week. Yeah, I think that's, uh, you're right. They, they wouldn't want to spend too much energy defending it on the first day or the second day, if you like. Having said that, it's such major profile for a team that has that jersey for the sponsors. And it's very valuable, you know, it's very valuable as far as ongoing sponsorship goes, etc. to hang on to the jersey. If you can, without sort of expending sort of too much unnecessary energy. Yeah, can you just explain to our listeners why that is the case? Why teams, some teams, once they do pick up the yellow jersey early in the tour, don't necessarily want to be defending it or doing too much work to defend it in the first week? What are some of the ramifications of doing that? Well, yeah, basically because they really need to save their workers to later on in the race, like it's a three-week race. So you need to save your good workers and keep their legs as fresh as possible when you might be having to really, really defend in the high mountain stages. So you don't really want them having to defend early in the tour, which means on these earlier stages, riding on the front, chasing down every little breakaway, breakaway group that gets away. You know, you can't keep chasing all day um, for breakaway groups. 
um, to hang on to that jersey when um, you need to, you know, keep them in good shape for later on the tour. So it's a little bit of, it's, 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 a, it's like chess, you know, it, it, when do you play the right move? And, uh, but as I just said before, it's worth a lot of money uh, and worth a lot of sponsorship credence and what have you to hang on to the jersey if, as long as you can. Yeah, now in terms of, you've talked about it, there'll be some teams here that will have what they call a GC rider or trying to win the yellow jersey or trying to get high up on the podium. There'll be other teams here that'll be looking to try and win stages. Just talk us through how some of these teams uh, determine their riders and if they're trying to win GC, how that team might look versus if they're teams that are trying to maybe win some of the sprint stages and, and the type of cattle they might bring into their team. Yeah, for sure. Like uh, the favourite to win the race, of course, is last year's winner, Jonas Vingegaard, who's in phenomenal form. We've seen in some of the earlier races. So he's come to the tour with a team based on general classification. So riders that can climb, like it, you can't win the tour to France unless you can climb. So uh, he's got uh, riders around him that will protect him on the big mountain stages and strong guys that can actually chase down some of the uh, high contenders later on in the race. Whereas you'll get a team, say, like Stana, for instance, which Mark Cavendish is in. You know, Mark Cavendish has won 34 stages in the Tour de France and equal with the great Eddie Merckx. So he's in his last tour and wants to be, you know, have that record on his own. So he's going for the 31st stage win. So his team is built around sprinters. And so they won't bother about that general classification so much. Um, so they'll concentrate on the sprints. And there are other teams that will concentrate on what's called the points jersey, the green jersey, where they'll go for intermediate sprints along the way and try and pick up some other points at the stage finishes to try and win the green jersey, which is sort of like the number two jersey behind the yellow jersey. And then you've got the polka dot, which is the king of the mountains. There'll be teams that will concentrate on that classification as well. So, yeah, you pick, you pick your team to suit what you think you've got a really good chance of winning. Mm. With the radios these days, and they don't have them at the Olympic Games, and there's always discussion whether the radios um, are a good thing or a bad thing, and everyone's got a, a different point of view on it, but it does make it a lot harder these days for solo riders to go up the road and stay away and try and create that great moment for themselves and the team. Just, just explain why radios, what radios allow teams to do. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. I, I don't really think um, you could ride the Tour de France safely these days. If you look at the safety aspect, um, you know, what the radios are good for, the team manager <coughs> sitting in the team support car is telling their riders what's coming up ahead. This is a dangerous descent coming up, guys. Be really, really careful. Or oh, it's just rained, you know, 20 minutes before. It's going to be slippery. So that's the safety aspect of the radio, which is probably the most important thing. The other thing is tactics. Yeah, like a breakaway gets up the road and you don't know who's in it. Like there could be a dozen riders, um, whereas the team manager will quickly hear on what's called uh, race radio, um, who's in that breakaway group. And then they'll look at where those riders are on general classification. If there's anybody there that's a danger, uh, like could be within you know a minute or so of, of one of your riders, or if they're a group of riders that are way down on classification, like 30 minutes down, 40 minutes down, 
So you decide then whether you should get to the front of the main peloton and chase like hell to bring that group back because it's dangerous, or let them go and basically have an easier day ready to do something different tomorrow. Mm. Now, okay, let's just go back to my point I made about the first week. Just just say that you do have the yellow jersey and you're keen to defend it for the reasons you've alluded to. What does that What does that mean for you during a stage and how much pressure is put on you and and what are some of the things that you you have to do to retain that jersey? Well, you've got to show the rest of the peloton that you are um, serious about um, defending it and actually obligated, I guess, showing obligation to the jersey. So it's no good having the yellow jersey and all your riders are sitting near the back having an easy day if there's a breakaway that's gone up the road. Because what will happen is the other team will say, well, you know, you guys, you've got the jersey, you're sitting on the back, you're not prepared to chase, so we're not going to chase either. So, you know, you do show an obligation and you'll notice that if, if there is a dangerous breakaway group that gets away, you'll, you'll soon see the team that has the yellow jersey will be on the front of that peloton and they'll start working hard and probably put three or four riders on the front. And then they won't be the only team that does that because once the riders in the main peloton see that they're serious about defending the jersey, you'll find that maybe the second, the guy who's second on general classification, his team will go to the front and try and help out with the work and so on. So, yeah, it's a bit of an unwritten rule in some ways that mm. um, if you've got the jersey, be expected to defend it. Yeah, yeah, and one way to stop people from going up the road is clearly set a pretty strong tempo on the front of the peloton, which makes it almost impossible for a single rider or a couple of riders to be able to get out and, and maintain a pace. Uh, what, what sort of speed does it start to become um, almost impossible for one or two riders to go up the road? Yeah, I guess, you know, like basically they sit in between that um, you know, 45 to 50, 52k an hour is sort of like a normal um, speed of a fast-moving peloton along the road. So if you're in a breakaway uh, trying to get away, you've, you've got to be sitting up in that in the 50k plus uh, speed zone mark, to be fair. Uh, unless, of course, it's hilly terrain or it's a really strong headwind or, or whatever. But once again, the team manager or the, you know, the director sportif, as we, as we know it in uh, cycling terms, he, he, he will determine... Um, whether you should chase after that breakaway group. They are currently doing, say, 54k an hour average. Um, you guys will need to do 56k an hour to actually bring them back within so many kilometres. They'll have it all worked out. And that's why quite often you see a breakaway group that may get out to a big lead of, say, 12 minutes or what have you, and then it'll gradually whittle down, and then they get caught with, like, you know, 3k to go or something. And that's all worked out, really, by the, the team directors knowing how, how fast you have to go to actually bring that group back just before the finish. And they, t- they normally time it to perfection. And it's always great to see a breakaway hold on because they dig a bit deeper and, uh, and, they, um, and they come through. And, you know, cycling uh, supporters always love to see that long-term breakaway 
win the stage. Yeah, you know, look, I often... How many is the right number in a breakaway? I mean, sometimes when you get sort of too many, they can start looking at each other and, you know, often teams will have maybe a policeman in that group and won't necessarily do no work. I mean, is three, four, five, six... What's the ideal number in a breakaway to try and stay away? I think it depends on the conditions, Mark. Like, if it's a really strong headwind, you want as many as you can in there, you know... If, you, if, if it's like a strong tailwind or something, like two or three guys can, can stay away. So, um, yeah, I think it, it does depend a lot on the conditions. But one thing is, and what I should say, is that if a group gets quite big on a breakaway, they'll look at the riders and they'll get information again from their team car that, guys, you, you know, you're probably you're going to get caught because you've got number 54 in there and he's only laying 1 minute 20 down on overall lead so that breakaway is not going to succeed mm. so sit up and um, wait till it gets caught because you want a breakaway to go away that's got riders that are well down on general classification so that the main contenders are not going to chase you. Yeah, yeah. so if you, if you get into that second or third week and you get a sort of a moderate stage where um, the big boys are probably using it more as a rest day. You find yourself an hour down on GC, probably a good idea to maybe have a chat to a number, a couple of riders that are an hour back and go, hey, maybe boys, we should have a bit of a crack today. They might just let us go. Absolutely. That, that's exactly what happens, Mark. Is a, there's a lot of moves decided over the cup of coffee mm. at breakfast time, I think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's have a look at uh, Tadaj Pagacha. Now, he ended up getting a narrow victory uh, when I say narrow victory, he ended up finishing third, but he got his nose in front of Jonas uh, Vingard. Uh, is that a psychological lead right there, or is that just, I mean, it's not going to determine the tour, but can we read too much into that? Don't think you can read anything into it, Mark. Like, Vingard looked like he was backpedalling all day. He was just absolutely cruising. He, he didn't have to contend the sprint for third place at all. Um, having said that, Pogaccia looked just as good. So I think it's going to be a, another battle between those two guys. But no, you don't you don't sprint unless you really have to. Like you know, don't take risks if you don't have to. Don't waste energy if you don't have to. He was on the same time as Pogaccia. Okay, Pogaccia got a couple of seconds bonus for finishing third. Um, but no, there was no need for him to do a big gallop at the end. Now Adam Yates, who rides for UAE Team Emirates, the same team as Tadaj Bagacha, uh, that would pretty much be his day in the sun because he's now very much the lieutenant. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, but they, you know, it, it's good that they've got two real GC contenders. So Bagacha can get sick, or he can have a fall, or anything can happen. Uh, and, and I've got Yates right there. So you know. If you look at Yombo, Fisma uh, team, yep. uh, Vingegaard, like he, he's got other GC yeah, Volt, Volt Van Aert. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And, you know, he's got Seb Coos and he's got Benoit, uh, and you know it's just stacked with GC riders. So um, UAE in a good position uh, at the moment for sure. Yeah, let's um, just talk about Corbin Strong. Uh, as you said, uh, remarkable, led in that chase group uh, just 17 or seconds back, I think, uh, finished 16th on GC. Tell us a little bit about him and his meteoric rise because it is really just a wonderful story. On debut, his first tour to France, riding for Ismail Premier Tech. Yeah, um, they were actually 33, 33, 33 seconds. 33, my apologies, yeah, poli- yeah, 33 seconds yeah, no, back, no, sorry. No, yeah. no, 
yeah, they were close. They were, they were really, really close. And and there were some GC contenders in in his group for sure. And um, I didn't see the finish uh, when they when they finished. But um, like Corman comes from a very, very successful uh, track program, of course. Um, you know, Commonwealth champion, world champion, and, and points races. And he, he got picked up by uh, Israel Premier Tech because of his explosive speed, I guess you could say, and his good uh, race sense. He, he places himself well in the field. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised. I would not be a bit surprised if, if uh, he pulls off, um, if not a stage win, uh, top three at some stage. And, uh, you know, he's there for that. That's what he's there for. He's there to finish off. Um, and he's there to use that... Uh, that top end speed speed that he's got, like um, his uh, his GC uh, uh, rider in there is, um, is is Michael Woods, the, the Canadian. Yep, and he was he was in the front group today. So uh, Corman Stroll, uh, well, but he won't be the, he won't be the number one lieutenant to him, but he will certainly be a great support rider along the way. That's for sure. Yeah, Woods came from a running background, didn't he? And then picked up cycling. Remarkable story in itself. Now, just going back through to some of the riders in that group there, Louis, Louis Leon Sanchez, Matthew Van der Poel. I mean, you go through it, boy. You, you, Tom Piddock, uh, Pidcock, mountain bike um, yep. Olympic champion who switched to the road. It's, um, <laughs> it's, not a bad little, uh, it's not a bad little group that he was in amongst. A remarkable story. But it no, is, it, no. it, it, it's just great, though, isn't it? What it does say is that you can come from these small towns, you can come from little old New Zealand, and you can arguably ride the biggest sporting event on an annual basis, just, you know, that it's not beyond you. And, uh, you know, maybe disappointing that we've only just got the two riders this year on the start line, but it, it, it just shows it can be done, and it can be done by just training and going through the school system here and, you know, paying your dues. Exactly. That's exactly right. We mustn't forget the other rider. Yeah, Dion Smith. Yep. And um, he rides for Intermarche uh, Circus Wanty, and he he finished like the place in his 94, but don't forget there's nearly 200 riders in this race, and um, his, his placing as such doesn't mean anything. It's not as if he was trying to finish, you know, 93rd or something, but, but it, all it says is that he was in a big group that finished 11 minutes down. And when you think that uh, Mark Cavendish was in a group that finished 21 minutes down, um, you can see that uh, Dion Smith's ride uh, was midfield. And, um, and Dion, Dion struggled for quite a while to get himself a pro contract, and I tried to help him, help him along the way with that. And uh, it's good now to see that he's riding the number one bike race in the world and has finally made it. And uh, he's got a job to do too. Like, Dion's smart. He's a smart rider. And he um, he will be certainly there helping out uh, Michael Woods along the way, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Who's going to win it? You, you, you don't have to be right. But just, just... Well, if you look at the TAB, I look at the TAB odds, Mark, I'm like, geez, I've got to have a bet on something. But you can't. You can't put money on Pogaccio or Vingegaard because they're both hot favourites and you're lucky to double your money. But, um, you know, I, I went for a rough outside. Well, it can't be too rough because he's got a good reputation. But Mikhail Lander, um, yeah. I think he was paid about 65 to 1 or something. Um, but, 
You mentioned Corbin Strong there potentially winning a stage in the Tour de France. Do you think people here in New Zealand would understand the magnitude of it? Do people realise just how big a deal that is, that it is considered a professional race win? Yeah, it's hard to say. Like, um, Obviously, cycling has shown a lot more now uh, on TV and that here than what used to be in the old days. Um, I think if you watch a couple of stages of the Tour de France, you'll certainly gain pretty quick um, understanding and appreciation of how big a deal it is to just get to the start line in mm. this bike race. Uh, like the crowds are bigger and bigger every year, Mark. They really are. Like that first stage today was just horrific yeah. as far as the crowds go. So the following is enormous. And, you know, like, sure, we only got two in it. Um, well, I thought we would have had four, but obviously a couple of our guys are probably going to be lining up in the Vuelta, the Tour of Spain. Yeah, what was the deal with George? Was that due to the crash in Switzerland, or was he just not not always going to – he was just never going to make that team? I'm, I was trying to sort of find out a little bit more yeah. information, but I, I couldn't get clarity either way. No, no, I don't know. I haven't dug into asking the question, but it, normally – the, the tour directors will have decided which race suits the best uh, for your form at this type or which terrain is going to suit you the best. And, uh, yeah, I, I think with that poor weight George had, has probably knocked him back a bit, but um, I, I would be surprised if he didn't get a start in the Volta. Yeah, and the, we should just say that three grand tours a year, Giro d'Italia, or Tour of Italy, the Tour of France, and then, of course, the Tour of Spain or the Vuelta of España. Uh, look, um, lovely to catch up, uh, Ron. Greatly appreciate it. It's a wonderful insight. I mean, it's sometimes easy, isn't it, if you live in this world, you assume everybody knows sort of how things operate. There's a lot of people out there that, yeah, I'm sure you've taken out quite a bit of guesswork for them, and it certainly allows it, to, you know, certainly understand the intrigue that goes with an event like this. It's it's not necessarily the best rider that always wins. Sometimes it's the smartest. There is a little bit of luck, but it often just comes down to a really good team as well. Yeah, for sure, Mark. Yeah, pleasure. Okay, thank you. That is the great Ron Cheatley, the godfather of cycling in this country, joining us here on SENZ, Tour de France. It's a wonderful uh, postcard, isn't it, and promotion for... France. Uh, I was lucky enough to spend f- three New Zealand winters in southern France running triathlon New Zealand's high performance European base and we were both right at the p- base of the Pyrenees in a little place called Limou. New Zealand cycling team were in town as well and we'd often team up and go riding with their, their guys and they came out with us and I tell you what the bike riding was just stunning just blew your mind. You could sort of go certain directions. You could be sort of in more Mediterranean-type country than you could find yourself up in the Pyrenees. You could ride a lot of the stages for the Tour de France. I remember, and we'd get out and we'd go and watch the Tour de France, at least one stage every year. Uh, one year it pretty much came through town and ended up finishing in um, Carcassonne. Uh, another year we went up the Col de Tourmalet and uh, watched it up there. And then another famous client called Porte de Paia. We went up and watched that as well the likes of Julian Dean and a number of New Zealand riders um, over the years and certainly thrown our support at it but it is a big big event and uh, one thing I will say you know we have this real animosity towards bike riders drivers in this country just have this real hate for cyclists and I sort of get it now that I'm not riding you know riders need to stay a little bit further left but it's still not an excuse to try and kill someone on a bike I struggle with this mentality in this country where we sit in motorways for two hours in peak hour traffic doing 3k an hour 
and then get frustrated when we've got to slow down a little bit to go around a cyclist. And I can understand why cyclists ride in big bunches now because they just need to be seen. But in France, there's just so much respect for bike riders. They just, there's no aggression. They'll just find a way around you. They'll just take their time and they show you the respect. Mm, completely different mindset. But, I, I, you know, it's, it's a fascinating one. And I'd like to get your thoughts if you are watching the Tour de France. you got any thoughts on it? If you've been, I'd love to hear from you. Um, we spend a lot of money, don't we, trying to market and advertise this country. And I just wonder whether we had our own tour of New Zealand. Now, they have the Tour of Adelaide, the Tour Down Under which is in Adelaide, and it's a great promotion for Adelaide. I think it's in January, February, isn't it? January, and then, yep, January, late January. And I always think, man, imagine having a bike race where you started in Glen Orkey, south of Queenstown, brought it through Queenstown, up over the Crown Range. You finished in Wanaka or somewhere around there. You then took a stage up the West Coast, past the glaciers, drove the riders that night or that day, did maybe a stage down through to Tekapo, um, finishing up Mount John there. You could ship the riders up to the North Island, uh, you know, take them around the Coronandel Peninsula, a 200k ride there, um, which is just stunning. There are just so many beautiful parts in this country. Imagine having the drones up and the helicopters up and the best trade teams in the world down here for a week getting broadcast back into Europe. It would be a very, very cheap way of promoting this country. I tell you what, boy, we've upset Adam. He just cannot stop texting in Adam. He just cannot text in Adam. He's now starting to call me a Jaffa. Just another arrogant Jaffer, he's saying. Adam phoned us previously. He was an irate Australian. He didn't like me abusing the Australian cricket team. But he, he can't be. He must be reasonably intelligent, though, Adam. I mean, you're living in New Zealand, my good man. Don't let me live rent-free inside your head, big guy. I'm not worth it. <laughs> anyway... Uh, lines are open, 0800 150811 is the number. Okay, we're going to talk the Ashes after 2 o'clock, but we've got some texts that have come in regarding the Ashes. Good afternoon, Mark. As an English cricket fan living in Wellington, I'm disappointed in Brendan McCullum's holier-than-thou attitude, where selling out crowds and entertaining cricket appears to be the motto for embarrassing and poor performances. Brendan is an unproven test coach who's taking us down a 5-0 test series loss. The Aussies are hard to stomach, but at least their motto is to win the Ashes. Regards, Timothy. Really good text, Timothy. Thank you for sending that. Hope you're still listening. Um... Yeah, really good text. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Remember, before McCullum took over, they were 17 and 1, 17 losses, just the one test victory. So they were absolutely, utterly crap before McCullum took over. He's come in, and prior to this Ashes series, they'd won 11 out of 13. But there is a part where there's a difference between look, I still think at the end of the day, the best form of entertainment is still winning. At the end of the day, you want nationalism, you want to. Um, inspire a nation, you win and you win the ashes. I like the Brendan McCullum approach, but it does still need to be measured. You cannot be reckless. And that is the problem. These guys have got a little bit ahead of themselves and just been too stoic and say, no, no, this is the way we're going to play no matter what. No, 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 no. It's where you want to play 80% of the time, but you've got to still be measured. Do I think they'll lose the series 5-0? No, I don't. I think they will bounce back. But you do wonder whether or not this English batting lineup is that good anyway. Are they using Baz Ball as an excuse for their team? 
I mean, you've only, you know, they lost that first test admittedly by two wickets and they probably could have won it, but they didn't. And Australia suddenly, I won't say snatched victory from the jaws of defeat, but got away with one that England could have easily have won. And I wonder whether the same discussions around Basball and McCullum would be going on if it had gone the other way. I think the... I don't think actually Basball cost them the first test. I think Johnny Bairstow and his poor wicket-keeping probably cost them. Cricket needs something. I think Basball is a good thing. But there's a fine line between stupid and, you know... Well, there's a fine line, isn't there, between entertainment and stupidity. And England need to just at times rein it in a little bit. Will they win the second test? No. If they do win the second test, I think it'll be arguably the greatest performance in test cricket because they still need another 257 runs to win this. And when you look at that bowling line-up, it's... Not bad is it Stark, Cummins, Hazelwood, Cameron Green. And then you've got Travis Head bowling a bit of spin. Clearly because Nathan Lyon uh, can't. It's funny, isn't it? Nathan Lyon plays 100 consecutive tests and in his 100th consecutive test injures himself and probably be out and break his run. Fascinating to see who the Australians bring in as their backup spinner. But just running through that scorecard for you too. So in that second innings, uh, not out at the moment is Ben Stokes on 29 and not out is Ben Duckett on 50. Zach Crawley caught Carey, bowled Stark for three. Ollie Pope bowled Stark for three. Joe Root caught Warner, bowled Cummins for 18. All beauties. If you have just joined us, we've sort of had a little bit of banter with Adam out of Christchurch. You didn't like the fact that I put the boot into the Aussies. It's been a big discussion around a catch taken on the boundary. Um, by Mitch Stark, the Australians jumping up and down. How can that not be given out? How can that not be given out? That's one of the worst decisions ever. Yet when Steve Smith takes a catch a couple of days ago involving Joe Root, and you could argue it wasn't a catch, the Aussies say nothing. Um, When Boland takes a catch in that Test Championship final, which is very controversial, the Aussies say nothing. And I just cannot be bothered with the hypocrisy of the Australians. They jump up and down when Ollie Robinson gets out and abuses Usman Kawaja for finally getting him out in that first test, but forget that they pretty much wrote the book when it comes to sledging. Sandpaper gate, the underarm incident, all sorts of issues that have that have marred I think, the reputation and the legacy of the greatest cricket team in the world, which is the Australian cricket team. However, however, in saying that, it provides a narrative, which I'm reading, which you're all reading, which has us talking about the game around the water cooler, which means that a lot more people will take more interest in it. More people will probably watch the final day of this test. We'll be glued to the third test because of the angst. Rugby league have a lot of similar issues at times. But they're big products and they're big brands, aren't they? And they've got huge audiences. 
and I think rugby still needs to move into that direction at times. We need to have a bit of controversy in rugby. We need human emotions to come to the surface a lot more. We need to have more angst. Not everybody needs to like each other. Because we as humans are flawed. We are cavemen at heart. We still have that fight or flight mentality. We love a train wreck. Man's defeats are on the front pages of the newspapers. Man's victories are on the back. It sums us up. And the fact, and I keep saying this and it's become almost my default setting, the fact that so many people watch Married at First Sight suggests that we don't mind a little bit of chaos, a little bit of carnage and a lot of immaturity. 0800 is the number. 22 and a half minutes away from 2 o'clock. The lines are open if you want to have your say. We'll come back. We'll read some more texts. Chris is texting too. This baseball is just aggressive batting. Why score the runs in a third of the normal time when you let your prehistoric bowlers bowl for two thirds longer? Yeah, well said, Chris. 0800 is the number if you do want to phone at the programme. Taking your calls. Um... Yeah, we're going to talk some Ashes. John Harker, Australian broadcaster out of Sydney after two o'clock, get his thoughts on Australia's performance. We will sort of put the controversy and my sort of opinions on the Australian cricket team and their behaviour to one side and their hypocrisy when they jump up and down about catches that they think are taken that are deemed not to have been taken yet have no problem when they take similar catches that the England team deem not to have been taken and yet goes in Australia's favour. Mind you, we can all be hypocrites at times, aren't we? We were, uh, I think everybody at times is a hypocrite. Anyway, um, the other big talking point, if you've just joined us too, is this concept that Australian, well, that international rugby have agreed upon, well, Sansa and the Six Nations, where as of 2026, every second year, so every other year you'll have a Rugby World Cup or a British and Irish Lions tour, they want to have this 12-team international competition. It'll run through the June-July test window here in New Zealand and the November test window in the Northern Hemisphere. It'll be the Six Nations teams and the four Sansar teams and then two other additional teams. More than likely, and this I'm just going on what articles I've read, more than likely probably at the moment Fiji and Japan. And then as of 2030, they're going to have a second-tier competition as well with promotion relegation. So maybe the likes of Georgia, uh, Samoa, Tonga could end up playing in the Tier 1 international comp. And the bottom team of the Tier 1 comp would drop into the Tier 2 comp. Boy, I'd laugh if it ended up being a Scotland or Wales or one of those traditional Six Nations sides at some point in the future. Uh, there's been a lot of talk that what this means is that those emerging countries like Georgia, who have, who have recently had wins over Italy and Wales won't get to play any Tier 1 nations for four years, basically from 2026 to 2030. What I don't like about it, and I'm a purist, is what this means is we're going to play a lot of one-off tests with points on the board for winning and losing and drawing. And hopefully we don't have this bonus try stuff. I just don't like bonus tries. It's too weather-dependent at times. I mean, you've got better weather in Australia, you've got better weather in South Africa. Probably more chance of sides scoring more points in those countries. Never understood how a team can finish ahead of another team on a points ladder 
even though they've won less games, but they've got more bonus points. Anyway, that, that's another side. But for me, I, I just want rugby to go back to more international tours. You know, we're never going to play South Africa in South Africa again. We're never going to get a chance to go and play them in three tests over there and have a midweek team. And South Africa never going to have a chance to come down here and play us in three tests. We tour Australia and play Australia in three tests and vice versa, like once happened. I want to go back to the touring days. It absolutely sucked that we got beaten by Ireland last year and they toured here. But imagine what it did for those Irish players, their legacy. First ever Irish team to win a series in New Zealand. Remarkable achievement. Remember the 96 sides, 96 All Blacks that went and won a first ever tour in South Africa. Mind you, you couldn't through the apartheid era because you played the referees. But South Africa hadn't won a series here since 1938. Still haven't. You know, you go back and you think of the Zinzan Brooks, the Craig Dowds, the Olo Browns, Ian Jones, Robin Brook, Michael Jones. Wonderful side. I think Bashab was at halfback, was he, in 96? Andrew Merton's at first 5'8". Jonah was on the side, Jeff Wilson. Frank Bunce. Great all-black side, wasn't it? Josh Cromfeld. Christian Cullen didn't play that year, he came a little bit later. You remember those iconic sides because, yes, while it wasn't a Rugby World Cup, they did something really big and really important. But you go back days two of Clenethley and their famous victory, I think, over the All Blacks and what it means to that Welsh club. Munster in Ireland beating the All Blacks and how they still live off that because you had the midweek games. Am I being too much of a romantic? Is that model still realistic? 0800 150 811 is the number. You can text us here on double eight double three. After 2 o'clock, we will talk the ashes. John Harker on the programme out of Australia. Uh, yeah, Anthony uh, just texted in uh, saying that, yeah, in fact, it was Justin Marshall at halfback, wasn't it? It was Justin Marshall that played at halfback. Not sure, though, uh, that Christian Cullen played in that 96 series. He played his debut against Samoa and then played Wellington. Did he go in 96 on that tour? Did he play in that series? I'm just trying to remember. I might have to try and see if I can find a team and bring it up from the 96 side. Um, played for the New Zealand Sevens team, played his debut for the All Blacks in 96. Let's just have a look here. I might have to read through it in the next commercial break and come back to you on that, Anthony. But I do love the engagement, Anthony, and I love your uh, sporting knowledge, mate. You've got to remember in this game, mate, we only get about, you know, some things just come along and you've you got to go off your own recall. So you're not always going to be right. I get that. Um, but boy, what a wonderful side. Wouldn't it be great to have tours back like that again? You know, and I'd love to see the midweek games when sides toured here, not to play super rugby sides, because they 
they just rest and give their wider squads. I'd rather see, you know, imagine Australia touring here in three tests. I remember Mike Clamp and guys establishing their name on those tours to Australia back in the mid-1980s. Um, and But playing the Manawatus, the Hawks Bays, the Tasmans, Otago, and trying to get capacity crowds back in and trying to just use it as an opportunity to re- try and revitalise the MPC because it really is struggling at the moment, isn't it? I just I remember um, Mount Abbott Grammar, Rod Heaps. Now, Rod Heaps is an All Black who played in the 1960s New Zealand Sprint Champion. He was actually very good mates with my father at Mount Abbott Grammar. Never played first 15 rugby. But he actually holds the record for the most tries by an All Black in a game. Not Mark Ellis in a test. I get that against Japan, but seven tries. And he scored that against Northern New South Wales. The only way you can play Northern New South Wales is by going on those big tours and having the dirt trackers. And, um, you know, those records are probably never going to get beaten, are they? Because you just don't get the opportunities anymore. But rather than having the, and I can't stand the word All Black 15 because it's not an All Black team, but instead of having the New Zealand 15, just extend this group of your wider group, 35, 36 players on the end of a year tour or a mid-year tour, and put your dirt trackers back out on the park. And if someone gets injured, you call them into the squad like it used to be. Problem is now, though, sports science has come along and everybody's told them that players can't handle it anymore. We've all bought into it. We've all dumbed it down. Right, four minutes away from two. Coming up after two o'clock, we will head across to Australia. John Harker on the programme. We will talk all things the Ashes. Sunday afternoons with Mark Watson. Uh, we're going to head across the ditch in one moment, catch up with John Harker and talk the Ashes. We've got Carl on the phone. I'll come to you in one moment, Carl, but I just quickly want to run through that squad that won that series in South Africa in 1996, and you guys are 100% correct when it comes to Christian Cullen. But what a lot of people will forget, and I've always I've always rated him highly, wonderful goal kicker. Simon Culhane actually played in the first and second t- tests there. So it was Culhane, John Preston, Matt Cooper, Jeff Wilson, Zinzan Brooks, Scott McLeod, Junior Tanu. Andrew Mertens, Andrew Blowers, Christian Cullen, Sean Fitzpatrick, Alama Itamir, Blair Larson, Walter Little, Jonah Lomu, Justin Marshall, Glenn Osborne, Eric Rush, Carlos Spencer, Mark Allen, Con Burrell, Todd Blackadder, Robin Brook, Olo Brown, Frank Bunce, Coffin, Davis, Dowd, Hewitt, Jones, that's Michael Jones and Ian Jones, Josh Cromfeld, Tabai Madsen, Oliver, Randall and Taylor. There you go, that was the all-black team that toured in 96. Uh, Carl, good afternoon, welcome. Good afternoon, Mark, thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, just want to pick up on your comments on, on touring and I guess the importance of touring to, to the sport of rugby, I guess. You would have seen a few days ago in the press that the Crusaders, obviously one of the most successful sides of, of recent times, probably of a professional era in terms of club rugby, um, announcing a tour to, I guess, UK and Ireland. I yes. think it's UK and Ireland. Um, I think that just shows pure innovation. Uh, touring is, is a massive part of the game. Um, I agree. I think it was Colin Mangebridge was saying about, you know, cohesion as a new group at the Crusaders. Um, it's, it freshens up the players. You know, in pre-season, they play the same teams they do in, in, during the season. It's just, uh, I think it's a massive part of the game. I think the Irish team here last year, 
has made for such an interesting um, calendar this year leading up to the World Cup. It just it 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 it's uh, it's good for the country. Obviously, games get shared around and, and players get variety. I think it's important that tours just don't get canned because you know they're trying to create a global game. Yeah, I agree. Like, I, I, I want us to go. I'd rather us go and play England in three tests, and you know, if they're all at Twickenham, they're all at Twickenham. We play some midweek games. The same, you know. I always grew up, and they had the tests at Carter Farms Park, and the great tours that came down here. Uh, we saw how the Irish series captivated us last year, and I think the benchmark in regards to that model is still the British and Irish Lions. And you know, I just don't want to get to the point yeah, where we play England once a year from 2026. Yes, it's got some meaning on it because there are points up for grabs, but and while it's a new era, I just yeah, it just it just to me, I guess I'm a little bit of a hopeless romantic. Romantics are good for rugby, mate. They're good for rugby. I think, um, yeah, it's uh, New Zealand, South Africa, you know, playing South Africa in the high belt in Cape Town. They're massive games. You know, we look forward to those. Everyone watches those. Um, they're an important part of the game. The global rugby calendar, I think, is what they're trying to achieve and some sort of club competition or international competition. I get that, but uh, you can't have the smaller sides like your Georgias who are now mm. taking over some of the bigger sides um, just, just put in the second division because that's where they've always been. You know, you look at Italy, have been the Six Nations for a long, long time and haven't really achieved a mm. huge amount, uh, in my opinion. So, um, yeah, that's mm. sort of where I stand. It needs to... Where in the UK are you from, Carl? I'm from London. Oh, OK. Yeah, you got a football team or a rugby team? Yeah, I do. London Irish, unfortunately, we're no longer around. But, yeah, um... no, not good. <laughs> Yeah, no good, no good. And what about a football team? Chelsea, mate. Oh, Chelsea, Chelsea, it hurts. But no, you're entitled to be a Chelsea fan. You're entitled to Up be season. a Chelsea fan. Off season. And how long you, how long you been here, Carl? Uh, 10, 11 years now, yeah, playing rugby, coaching rugby. Um, yeah, love the game. And uh, I just think um, what you're talking about, tours, maybe start thinking about tours I've been on myself and, and been involved with and seen, you know, I was coaching a bit of rugby, school, schoolboy rugby. It's, it's a massive part of the game and... Mm. Um, they lose tours, you know. It's uh, it's uh, well, it's, yeah. But we've also dumbed it down. We've convinced our players they no longer can play more than three or four games in a row, and I don't think that helps. So you said you've toured a lot. Have you played rugby at a reasonably high level? Uh, reasonably high, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here in the UK, yeah. Well, good on you. Hey, lovely to have you on the program. Don't be a stranger to the show, Carl. Good go. Good go. Cheers, mate. Thank you. Right. Speaking of hopeless romantics, let's um. Let's now head across to Australia and catch up with Australian broadcaster John Harker. Afternoon to you, John. Morning to you, John. G'day, Watto. Uh, just, it's just rolled over afternoon here. But uh, I tell you what, if you're talking rugby, you've got to be a hopeless romantic to follow Australia, the, the Wallabies, to have any hope. But anyway, oh, look, maybe you, one you, day we'll be back. No, you look, at the, you look at the other side of that World Cup draw, though, and we know that a World Cup can still be one-off stuff. I mean, we saw Morocco go on a big run at the FIFA Football World Cup. It doesn't always play out. I'm not sure the best team wins the World Cup. A lot of people here still believe Australia potentially could win that Rugby World Cup, more for the fact that the top sides will probably end up knocking each other out. Yeah, and, we're, and we've gone back to the future with Eddie Jones. But time will tell, mate. We'll see. We'll hey, see. Hey, what's been the general reaction regarding Eddie Jones and that first Wallaby squad that he has picked? Uh, look, there's, at the moment, Eddie's the Eddie Jones fraternity that love Eddie, um, are, are, they're all in with Eddie, and, and everybody else, I think, is, is just thinking to themselves, is, is this where we're heading? You know, Eddie's, Eddie's a polarising character, no matter who he picks. Um, but... Time will tell, and, and look, my gut feeling is that Eddie's going to have more success than the than the, the I think he's I think he's the right man, but uh, but but you know I'm I'm 
but I'm not as all in as, as some others are. Is is, is he not? Is is he a bit of a, a fix it type coach though? Does he does he wear start to wear a bit thin uh, with longevity? Oh, I, I, I think absolutely. But then there've, there've been great coaches in the. I mean, Jack Gibson, the great rugby league coach. Um, the, the you know the, the late Jack Gibson would only stay at a club for three years. That was he, he just thought you know I've done what I can do, and the players get sick of hearing me. Um, whether that's right or wrong, you look at someone like Craig Bellamy, you know, with, with the Storm for, for 20 years. It's been it's been proven it can work both ways. But I, I think you're right with, with Eddie. I don't, I don't think he's, you know, I don't think he's a person to be carrying you through a decade as a as a national coach. But I'm not sure there is anyone that can carry you mm. the national team through that sort of length of time either. Okay, let's have a look at the Ashes. Um, a lot of intrigue in the series with the way England have been playing. Before Brendan McCullum came along, they'd won. They'd lost 17 and won one. Uh, prior to the Ashes series, they had won 11 out of 13. Uh, they're playing this baseball approach, which appears to be backfiring against a very good Australian team. Do Australia now believe they can win this series 5-0? If you'd asked us that before Nathan Lyon was injured, I would have said yes. Um, and I think they're going to win this test. I mean, like they need 257 if they... Another 257, rather, if they get them... Um, Good luck to them, and, and what a win that would be—a record-breaking win. But I, I think taking Lyon, Lyon's played a hundred tests in a row as a bowler in all conditions, and he just gets vital wickets. You know, it might be two here, three there, and then of course every now and again he'll he'll get a six or seven for. But he's such a great player, and he's a heart and soul of that side. I think, and what he did last night, hobbling out on, on one leg to, to try and well, in, in the end they added fifteen. Um, you know, he's just such a vital cog for us. I think they'll win this test. They'll lead 2 0. But, um, you know, whether without Nathan Lyon there, uh, they, they win 5 0, I don't know. But, but I love baseball. I, I, I love, I love the, um, the unpredictability of Stokes. I, I love the way that he's, he's always looking to move the game forward. I haven't loved the last couple of nights, to be honest, of, of all the short pitch bowling. You know, back to. Back to back to body line, or as Jardine called it all those years ago against Brad, Bradford Leak theory. Uh, it's 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 not intimidating stuff, but it's it, it's it's there were moments last night. I don't know how you found it, found it, Wallow, but I thought it was a bit dull. And, and we're doing it too. I'm not saying I'm not, not just blaming England. I I thought it was just dull, predictable. They're going to bowl short. The bloke's going to duck. Going to bowl short. The bloke's going to duck. It just got it. It got a bit tedious for a while last night. Yeah, look, it's a fascinating one. I mean, we've all got you know, we've got Stokes who you know lived here in New Zealand for um, his first twelve years of his life. His father captained the Kiwis in rugby league, and uh, clearly Brendan McCullum. You're all proud of what he's done, and it's it, it's amazing that a kid from South Dunedin who grew up in a working class family has been able to revolutionise Test cricket. And I think cricket does need it. I, I mean. Australia are always going to attract quality opposition, uh, but for countries like New Zealand, we're sort of sitting here going, well, T20 cricket, too much of it, yeah, okay, it's got an entertainment component to it, but doesn't really have any sort of sense of nationalism if you win. One day yeah, cricket... Yeah, do you care? That's right, do yeah. you care? I don't think you do, and I think one day cricket's a bit the same as World yeah. Cups, but test cricket's a fairly contest, and I, I like what they've done, but you do have to... Some of the comments after that first test when they when they lost, I thought we were a little bit troubling. Even from Stokes, when he's saying, "Oh, we still played great at attaining quick cricket," deep down, surely it was still hurting. There's sometimes where you've got to be able to play a bit of both, I think, and, and they'll yeah. they'll yeah. work that out. They're a terrific side, and 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 clearly, McCullum is a great coach, and Stokes is a fantastic leader. 
But where's it? we've got a very, very, very good attack. And as they showed in that, in that first inning, well, they lost five, five for 46. They should have led on the first inning. And, and instead they found themselves 90 odd behind. Yeah, and I guess that's isn't. It? I mean, yes, it's entertaining, absolute capacity. I mean, we here in New Zealand are intrigued by it. Ironically, we're watching, you know, Australia and England to get our cricket fix. But I would still argue that the England public's greatest form, greatest form of happiness, would actually be just winning tests and winning the Ashes. And it's just trying to get that balance, isn't it, between, you know, playing baseball, but it's a fine line between playing that and actually being reckless. And I, I think in this second test, particularly, we've just started to see some recklessness creeping. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and look, you don't want them to turn back to having a team of, of Jeffrey boycotts, um, but they, they need to be able to do both. And I think Stokes is, Stokes is showing signs of that in the second innings. You know, he's, he's 29 from plenty. Duckett's 50 from 67. It should be out. Uh, what did you think of that catch? I, I get the rules. He should have been out. What annoys me, and I've been going on this, John, and you might not like this because you are Australian, and I sit here, though, and I just struggle with the hypocrisy, though, of some of the cries from the Australian media particularly because we saw a Steve Smith catch the other day, which was somewhat controversial. We saw a similar situation with Boland in the Test Series victory against India where the catch was somewhat controversial. Nothing said by the Australians. It's all completely legit. And and I didn't appreciate the fact that, you know, they all came after the Australian bowler um, with uh, Ollie Robinson after he gave Usman Khawaja a bit of a send-off. And I'm thinking, hang on a minute, the Australians, you guys wrote the book when it comes to this sort of sledging. I remember, Steve, I, I, I remember um, your former Australian captain saying, we will break your effing arm and some of the antics that go on. So yeah, I thought that while I agree with you, I just struggle with, I guess, the double standards from former Australian players. Yeah, no double standards for me, though. I, I, there was a period there of Australian cricket where we were a terrific cricket team but we weren't a, a group of terrific cricket representatives. I, I thought under the captaincy of war and then, and then um, carried on by Clark, they were a very good side but they weren't particularly likeable and, and I didn't like the way they played. Um, I don't think that that's the case anymore. And Kawaja didn't. Kawaja couldn't care less about that send-off. When he was asked about it, he said, it's all part of the game. Of course just, it is. And, and also, if you're going to send somebody off, you're going to need to be able to keep backing it up. It's part of it's part of cricket. It's, it's just, I, didn't, you know, I didn't think that mattered at all, and I thought that there was much more doubt about the um, the Smith catch than the uh, the start catch. I, that just that was that was ridiculous to me. But uh, GE bowled well, Stark. I, I, I also I, I struggled with them leaving him out of the first. I just think there's a bit of the sameness to us if we, if we don't have the left armour there. I thought he should have played the first test, but you know they they got they got the they got the runs in the end, but. But, you know, and on Kawaja, do you remember about probably four years ago? We'll yeah, he was, he was dropped. And, yeah. I remember, and I remember saying to you, they should play, they should they should open with him. Mm. And no one was, everyone thought, oh, that's ridiculous. Here he is. The last 18 tests he's played, he's averaging 60 as an opener. Mm. Like it's, you know, he's just, see, he's the antithesis of, of, of baseball, I suppose you'd say. But when he gets, when he gets going, he plays well, but he, he plays what's in front of him constantly. Oh, I, you know, I think he's been absolutely terrific, Kawaja, for a long while, and he's that. You know, he's seen he's seen the new ball off in a way that enabled in that first innings. Uh, okay, did get a lot of runs, but he was there for a long time. Mm. And that enabled you know blokes like Head to come out and play the way that they played. It's 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 old fashioned Test cricket, and and it, and it's 
it's a really fascinating tale between that and baseball at the moment. And at the moment, we're just edging them, I reckon. Because it was Travis Head who was opening, wasn't it, before Usman Khawaja then came in. Is that correct? Uh, they or, was tra- Travis, or was Travis, Travis Head always in the middle order? No, Travis Head actually replaced Khawaja in the middle order when uh, they've been backwards and forwards, as you know. Yep. He's been, head, was, head was dropped from the middle order when he was uh, vice captain. Right. Uh, so they've been in and out, those boys. Khawaja made his debut um, the same year as Davey Warner, but yeah. has been in and out of the turf side. But um, no, they, they have used Head as a pinch hitter. Uh, as an opener, but I don't think they've ever had him as a first choice opener. Going back to when he was around, I'm trying to remember who was there. I think it might have been Matthew Renshaw was being used at the time that he was dropped, but I can't remember, to be to be frank. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because David Warner, you will sense, you know, if he's going to play for Australia, you'd sense that maybe, maybe he might get one more shot in Australia over the Australian summer. You've got Kawaja, who's 36 years of age. How important is it Kawaja stays at the top order and they try and get a couple more years out of him? I mean, who's in the background? Who are the potential future Australian openers? Yeah, well, unfortunately, Pukoski, who's the, who's the one that we're all hoping would come through, has obviously got uh, massive issues with concussion and also some, some mental health challenges. He was the one. And then the others that we've tried, look, we, we haven't found anybody that um, that consistently gets runs at the, at the top of the order. I think you're absolutely right. David Waters has already uh, signalled that he wants to make, he wants to play again uh, next summer, and he wants to farewell his Test cricket career uh, at the SCG Test. So we know if he if he makes it, and he's got to keep getting runs, but if he makes it and can go that long. We're certainly going to lose one at the top order. I don't think we have enough depth at the moment to lose two. There are people talking about bringing Cameron Bancroft back. Um, he's had a very good um, Shield summer. I think he averages around 80 in Shield cricket this year. So he's putting his hand up again as well. You talk about Cameron Bancroft because he was part of Sandpaper Gate and yet yep. he seems to have been the one that... I mean, was he punished because of that when Stephen Smith and perhaps David Warner weren't, or was he dropped genuinely because of poor form? Oh, look, all three of them were, were punished, but I think, um, look, I'm not an Australian selector. I don't sit in the I don't sit in the room to know what goes on, but I think it's it's a bit like those fines and those and, and those sackings that you see when the when the reserve grade has done the same thing that the superstar in first grade has done, but he gets his contract torn up. I do think that Smith and Warner were considered more vital parts of Australian cricket, and so Bancroft is, is serving a, a, a longer time in the abyss before they welcome him back because I don't think he's considered as vital. I think, like most people, where winning counts, uh, Australians are pretty good at forgiving uh, when, when people are important to them. You're listening to SENZ, iconic Australian sports broadcaster John Harker is my guest on the programme. So, John, who replaces Nathan Lyon for the third test, assuming that he will be out? Yeah, he'll be out. It's the Oscar that played in um, in uh, in um, New Zealand that got he's, and he's been taken away as the uh, as a secondary spinner here. So he'll come straight back into the side. I, I, what do you think? Make of the 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 non use of? I know it's been in for a while, but the. You've got a torn calf muscle and you don't get a runner. What do you make of that? What's your view? Oh, look, I think runners have been a long part and a long part of the tradition and history of the game and I'm not sure why that is one that I think there are other areas that you could tweak. Um, yeah, I, 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 
I, look, I, I never had a problem with it. I think, you, you know, you're putting the player at risk and if you don't bat him, then I think you're putting the game, um, then I think you're taking something away from the game and be honest, it's yeah. it's not through, it's not, th- you know, it's just through misfortune rather than any sort of intentional incident. Yeah, and, and, and you know, you've got the capacity, particularly in this incident, where, where there was a, he's, he's had a scan, so he's been checked. It's not like he's. It's not like we're trying to stooge up that there was an injury, but he has to hobble out, and then try and hit the ball for four and not run, and and um, have Stark trying to do the same thing because he can't back up. Mm. I just look, they put on, they put on fifteen runs. It's great to hear Lyon afterwards say that you know I'd do anything for this team, but it just seems odd to me that it's one of those circumstances where I thought he you know the game needs to have a, another look at runners. Well, it's funny though, isn't it? Because they allow replacement fielders on. And, and and of course, if you can cast, they, they allow you to be replaced. That's how Mar- Marnus Labuschagne first got his start in the Correct. running cricket team. Uh, for, 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 uh, for Steve Smith. Now, look, I just want to talk about Steve Smith. Uh, another 100. Um, remarkable player, averaging almost 60. Hasn't quite played 100 tests yet. I'd imagine he's wanting to try and score 40, maybe go past Ricky Ponting. Uh, putting sandpaper gate um, to one side. He's somewhat unorthodox. Um, how was he received in Australia and um, what ultimately do you believe his legacy will be and where will he sit sort of in Australian cricket history? I, look, I think he'll sit right up there. Um, I, I think he probably will um, finish his career averaging around that 60 mark and he's to, to apply the number of tests that he's, he's going to apply and, and average that sort of number. He has to sit right up there. He, he'll never quite escape sandpaper gate. I don't personally... I don't think he should be the vice captain of the team now. I, don't, I think all three of them should have been banned for ever ever being in a mm. leadership position of Australian cricket. I think Steve Smith failed in his, in his duty as a leader to have turned a blind eye on what went on there. If you can imagine what Ian Chappell would have said um, if, if the same thing was occurring, well, you can imagine for that moment what, what, what Dennis Lilly or Jeff Thompson would have said to somebody that suggested they need to doctor the ball too, just quietly. Well, I think, but, uh, oh, but, I, but John, I think over here. We, we... Again, I mean, is it the first time they did it or was it the first time they got caught? Probably the first time they got caught, mate. Uh, yeah. You know, let's be honest, but we don't know, but probably the first time they got caught. But the issue is, if you've been the leader that's allowed that to happen, I think that's enough of a question mark on your capacity to lead in the way that we want someone to lead mm-hmm. the most important national team that we have, that you shouldn't be asked to be in a leadership position again. I know he and look. I know he captain well in India. I, I get all that, that and, I, and I also would suspect that I hold a minority view. I, don't, I think most Australians would disagree with me. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, all right. So, oh, sorry, I just lost my train of thought there briefly. Just listening to you there. All right. So they should. Yeah, I, I think they'll wrap up this second test and then move you on. Think and- so. And then you yeah, probably end up winning the Ashes, and then we'll let the English tabloids go to town on Brendan McCullum and Ben Stokes and do what the English media do do best, John. Uh, look, Don't any... they turn on them? Oh, they're brutal, mate. Absolutely brutal. We're, we're probably a little yeah. bit we're probably a little bit too nice here in New Zealand, you know. We just you know find some way of dismissing it and we move on. Uh, what else is happening over there in Australian sport, my good man? Well, there's plenty. There's plenty taking place, as, as you probably would have noticed. We also the uh, women's team won the, uh, the T20 last night, so yep. they're now in a position where if, if they get if they capture any one of the last five matches, they've uh, retained the Ashes, which is fantastic. Uh, this, the, the netball's building up to a, a big final next week. The Swiss won their way through to the grand final last night. The Sydney team, so uh, Sydney's pretty excited about that. So yeah, plenty going on, and and of course the the, the state of origin. Uh, you would think that Fred Fittler's uh, 
his reign as, as state of origin coach is, is probably over there. Yeah. And what about they've lost, they've lost the series again, and you know um, he's got one match left, but I, I can't see him lasting. There's a push for um, for. Joey Johns to take over. I, I don't know whether that's the right yeah, move. Either, it's funny though, isn't it? Just, oh, let's go get another great player. What about actually just getting a coach rather than a broadcaster? Um, John, hey, just quickly too, I mean, I, I know your other two loves, Carlisle Swimming, Swimming and Water Polo. What's happening in this, those spaces? So, look, the, uh, the the swimming team's doing really well. Um, the the World Championship Australian team looks in, in great shape. The, the, the women's sprint relay looks fantastic. Um, so, I, look, I think we're heading to a a good Paris, and of course we're trying to build through until 2032. Um, and the, the, water, the two water polo teams, I think the women have a chance at, at, at getting a medal, but it's an outside chance. And sadly, I think the, the men are rebuilding. I, I think we'll struggle in Paris. Will I be seeing you in Paris, mate? I hope so, John. Oh, I hope so too. Yep. I, I hope so too. Hopefully, we'll be we'll be working together again. But yeah, but the uh, but I think the Australian swimming team's looking particularly good at the moment it's it you know olympics as we know they're they're hard to excel at but i i think we're going to take a very strong team over the, the men's and women's sprint swimming in particular is is great the battle between titmus or decky um summer mcintosh is going to be unbelievable it's it's going to be a, a a great couple of weeks of swimming in paris yeah, and just quickly too, I see uh, Hayley Lewis, who made her name here at the Commonwealth Games in Auckland here in 1990. Her son, Kai Absolutely. Taylor, had a sensational win in the men's 200 metres. Yeah, lane eight, hey? Uh, and interestingly enough, uh, in 1991 at the World Championships in Perth, Hayley won the 200 freestyle at the World Champs from lane eight. Her son swam at the trials, missed out, finished ninth fastest, after the heats, but Kyle Chalmers didn't want to, just because of the way that the, the program falls at the World Championships, he didn't want to swim the 200 freestyle. He swam the 200 freestyle in the heat through a, a bit of a, uh, a hit out and also to put, post a time that would get him good enough to get selected in the 4x2 uh, relay team and then pulled out of the final. So Kai Taylor goes from the emotion of, of, oh, I've lost my chance of getting into the, into the World Championship side because I've lost my chance at a, at a final. Kyle Chalmers pulls out. He hops into lane eight and wins. There's been some of the great wins from lane eight. Um, of course, Kieran Perkins probably the most famous of all in uh, in '96 at Atlanta from lane eight in the 1500. But uh, he's, he's added to that legacy and he's he's off to his first World Championships. And I don't know whether you saw the pictures of uh, of Mum and Dad in the stands, but Haley went absolutely nuts. Was beautiful. Oh, now fair enough too. Hey, John, lovely to have you on the program, my good man. Thank you as always. Anytime, what up? There you go, the great John Harker, 25 minutes after two. Telephone numbers 0800 150811. You're listening to SENZ. Telephone numbers 0800 150811 if you want to phone the program, taking some talk back. Uh, Look, we just had John Harker talking about Australia, uh, more than likely to win the second Ashes test. Um, uh, Interesting that he wasn't a big fan of Michael Clarke and war as captains of Australia, great side, but maybe didn't quite bring the level of decorum that you might expect with an international cricket side and I struggle with some of the hypocrisy that I see from the Australians, ex-Australian players around catches not being taken um, some of the sledging from England and I just think hang on a minute guys, you guys wrote the book on it Uh, classic classic definition of being bullies Uh, the other talking point if you want to phone the programme, if you've just joined the show is there's going to be um, from 2026 
is going to be uh, international tier one rugby competition that's going to happen every two years between the 12 best nations in the world, the four Sanzar nations, the six nations countries and two additional countries which will be based on a bit of research but at the moment probably Fiji and Japan. 2030 there'll be a second tier competition established for those emerging nations and there'll be a promotion relegation. Uh, What it will mean is that you will not get lesser countries playing the tier one nations for four years and we probably won't ever go back to that period of three test tours, internal touring, which is a shame. I'd love to see New Zealand sort of once every four years tour South Africa um, with the dirt trackers as well and then every other four years South Africa tour here so that all black teams of the future can try and achieve what New Zealand did in 1996 and what the South Africans did in 1938. And I think you could apply that across other nations. So what are your thoughts on that? 0800 150811. Hi, Simon. Yeah, good afternoon, Ian. Thanks for having me on the show. No worries. And I um, um, love the show and I um, love the what the SEN's brought to New Zealand over the last couple of years. And uh, I was listening in a couple of hours ago, about probably about 12.30, when you had that Australian guy call in about uh, Australian cricket. Uh, yeah. um, and you had that conversation with him. But uh, I, and I sit there and think it's... Um, we know, as a cricket liker, follower of cricket, not only New Zealand, but um, England and Australia and Pakistan and India... I guess it's really what we tolerate, you know. If, if if the armchair listener tolerates stuff like what's happening with Australia, then really we make it acceptable by being listeners by or supporters of it, but, um, just by accepting it and not really speaking out. And that's why I think it's really good that there's people like yourself on air and um, putting the, the views forward. And when people like yourself put few, your views forward and then... Yeah, you can do a little bit more research into it and have a look. Then that educates us and makes us better. But yeah, some of the some of the as you said, the um, thoughts and what's been happening with the there, it only makes yeah, it makes us aware. But we, I think it's a greater New Zealand thing that if we tolerate it and we listen to it and we support it and we accept it, then almost in a way we make it acceptable. Yeah, we're, 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 we're sort of we're complicit, aren't we? And that's where it does start to get complicated because there's a part of me, like I say. I what I'll say here. I don't like the Australians um, coming out and acting like they're holier than now and jumping up and down when something doesn't go their way, and then being one hundred percent quiet when the same situation falls on their side. Um, yeah. But at the same time, I love the narrative that surrounds it because that keeps me interested too. So. As much as I, they annoy the hell out of me, it's actually ironically a good thing for the sport because it creates multiple narratives and it does provide interest. It does get us talking about it. And rightly or wrongly, it actually is part of the reason why we are engaged in it. And I think that is because, look, we're not holier than now. We are all flawed and we do like a little bit of a train wreck. Yep, and it's, as hard as it can be, we've, we've probably all had to have done it in our lives and, and sit, sit back and, you know, say sorry to people and, you know, it's hard to do that or admit that we're wrong or we haven't got it right. But, I mean, none of us are better than others. We're all sports teams and really we're in, we're 
it's it's for the love of the sport. It's for the entertainment mm. purposes. And I understand the TV rights and stuff like that, and it's played there. But uh, certainly in the rugby area, as you were talking about before, as well, it's a bit harder with cricket playing mm. being played over there in the UK when it's on night time here. But uh, yeah, over the last week, and in, when the five days was on last week, I was up there three, four in the morning, still listening to the radio and stuff yeah, like I that. Yeah, and, and uh, good, good on you, Simon. No, that that and that's great to hear. Like I say, I I I understand. Look, we've all played sport, haven't we? And the most rational become irrational I mean I've played some seven aside and fun stuff where you know I've probably acted like a petulant brat and I've been really embarrassed half an hour later I've got a lot better as I've got older um, I can understand sledging going on I can understand Biff and Rugby League and I've got no problem with any of it um, I just find it quite amusing that the Australians suddenly have an issue with it when they're on the other side of it Yeah and whether it's just a young team or um, I guess that's why it's good to have that balance of younger members and a couple of older, older members that are more experienced just to bring that that, that experience and that flavour into it. So, uh, yeah, it's a tough one. But, um, yeah, interesting topic that was raised, I guess, probably about 12.30-ish, so uh, another Australian guy had on. But, uh, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's a bit of a character older. Yeah. What was his name? Um, sorry, Adam, Adam, but Adam. The first time I've, yeah, first time I've become aware of you since you've been on ECN over the last couple of months. And, um yeah, I did Google you, and um, yeah, you've been around for a while, which is good. But um, first time, certainly, I've been become a rib. You're there, and um, so yeah, thanks for the rib that you're putting into your oh, and the... No, look, Simon, look, Simon, with me, mate. I'm a straight shooter. Oh, I'm not afraid to have an opinion. Um, I don't, I, you know, you might not always agree with me, Simon, but um, yeah, but look, you know, like I say, I, yeah. I, I, I always say this to people listening to a sort of a talkback format. If you don't like opinion, don't listen to talkback, ready. But what I'm pleased is, Simon, you phoned the program, mate. I think it's a better experience yeah. when you talk, and uh, pleased and. Never be afraid to jump on and challenge me too. I won't treat you like Adam because I think Adam <laughs> was, yeah. yeah. And I, I was disappointed to read the um, media thing about ECN in the week. Um, I oh. think it was about Thursday that came out. But that's life in the way Yeah, I don't think that, look, I, I think sometimes, I think sometimes, you know, stuff coming out of the Herald, and remember the Herald also own a lot of radio stations, including ZB. Correct. I think yes. it's a little bit mischievous, to be honest. I'm not sure that yeah. that is necessarily the true story. Um, and, yeah. yeah, I just, yeah, and I've always said this, and, and, and you know, and I'm, I'm mindful of it too. I, I, I wouldn't necessarily sort of believe everything you read or necessarily um yeah, there. read yeah. it verbatim. No, certainly agree there. Yeah, yeah. No, it's certain. Certainly agree there. And uh, yep, and it's, I think SEN is going to go run up and up. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's it's good to have SEN in the country yeah. there. So it's, it's good they took over the um, TAB frequencies what a couple of years ago. Now I guess you're coming up to your second birth. Second yeah, I think I think we might. I think I think we might have already had it. We're very close to it. I've been lucky enough to have a sort of little part time basis for sort of about a. A year and a half, and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. It's been good getting back on the airwaves, Simon, and uh, it's nice being part of something. It's nice being able to uh, get paid to talk sport, which has always been the passion of mine. Hey, lovely to have you on the programme, Simon. Thank you. 22 and a half minutes away from 3 o'clock. You are listening to SENZ. Mark Watson with you. Take a break. We'll come back with more. It is 18 minutes away from 3 o'clock. You are listening to SENZ. Uh, Feel free to text us here on double eight double three. That is the text number. Um, someone just texted in, just the sandpaper. I'm 100% all, uh, all teams were ball tampering and Australia were the first to get caught. Look, I think it's gone on um, probably in different forms for a long time. 
I wonder whether, um, and just talking about Lance Armstrong, look, I think Lance Armstrong, yeah, was a scapegoat. I still don't believe the Tour de France is clean. I still don't believe you can win the Tour clean. I just don't. I just think it's too damn brutal. I think it's too damn tough, and I'm just not sure you can recover. That's all I'll say on that. Right, let's bring you the highlights of the fourth day of the second test from Lords between England and Australia. Broad delivers here and Kawaja pulls down towards long leg. He's hold out. That's a poor piece of batting. Kawaja so controlled and so disciplined. He knew what Broad was trying to do with three men set back. And he's popped it straight down the throat of the man at deep backwards square. Kawaja holds out for 77. And it really is against the flow of play as well. Bowles, Smith down to deep backwards square, hanging in the air. Smith hold out as well. What on earth is going on? Stephen Smith and Usman Kawaja were doing absolutely everything right. And in the space of a couple of overs, they've inexplicably fallen into the leg side trap. Robinson bowls to Green, who hooks it away. It's in the air, it's been caught! Another victim to the short ball. Cameron Green has been sucked in. Robinson gets the wicket in consecutive overs. And this is a massive moment in this match. With Carey out for 21. Australia have only got bowlers left. And the lead is at 3-3-3. But all looks fine as Nathan Lyon crosses the rope. And let's wait for the ovation. The MCC are standing. So are the Australian fans. This is a significant moment. Nathan Lyon playing his 100th test match. Severely incapacitated after tearing his calf. But grimacing with every step. And as we said before... Not too dissimilar to Colin Cowdery in 1963. With work to do for Australia as well. They lead by 355. Can he provide some brief assistance to Mitchell Stark? 9 for 264. Broad is going to continue from the pavilion. Andy Bowles to Lyon who hooks it away. Hooks it very well. He's done it. (laughs) Nathan Lyon gets a boundary. Behind square leg. He gets the thumbs up from Mitchell Stark. And his teammates in the pavilion are up on their feet applauding. Ward around the wicket, past the umpire bowls, and it's high! It's very high. Stokes should take the catch, and he does. And he hobbles off with the ball in his hand. And Australia's innings is complete. And Australia completes its second innings on the score of 279, and we've seen one of the most extraordinary last wicket partnerships in Ashes history, and that's not underselling things. That's a factor for Cummins and Co here. Stark in, bowls to... Hey! over! Middle stump out of the ground. As comprehensive as it comes. Stark gets a second. Australia bowling beautifully. England 2 for 13. Cummins in. Bowls to Root. Root. Oh, Edges, it's gone! That's a snorter from Cummins. It reared up off a length. Root had to fend it away from his lead. 
and he did so straight into the cordon. England lose a third wicket with the score on 41. Root's gone for 18. Captain Cummins down the slope. Have that. Strap yourselves in. Cummins close to the stumps. Oh. He's knocked him over as well. <laughs> oh, Patrick Cummins. This is a supreme performance. It's the old firm. Stark's gone bang, bang. Cummins has done the same. England four for 45. They are reeling. Brooke has been bowled for four, third delivery. This is quite the over. It may well prove decisive in Australia, winning the Ashes in England for the first time since 2001. Green bowls here. Oh, Duckett gives himself room. Top edge, deep. Caught! Mitchell Stark dives and catches. Cameron Green takes the wicket, and Australia gets such a crucial one before stumps. Or do we? We're waiting, we're waiting. No, it's given out. There you go. He's put his hand out to sort of Here we go. balance They're himself. They're giving a decision. Oh, it's not out. Wow. It is not out. You talk about controversy. Now, Pat Cummins is talking very sternly with the umpires. Mitchell Stark can't believe it. And Ben Duckett has gone all the way from the player's gate back to the middle. So there you go. It is set to go. For the fifth day, cannot see Australia, uh, England winning this one. Just history suggests that you're just not going to score the number of runs required on the final day with six wickets remaining, even under the baseball regime. If England were to win this test and they need a further 257 runs, it would almost be the greatest test match victory in Ashes history, I would have thought. Uh, ben Duckett there on 50, Ben Stokes on 29. Don't forget, ball-by-ball ball coverage will start tonight, just after 9 o'clock here on SENZ. Jeremy Coney is up there as part of that commentary team as well. It is coming up to 11 and a half minutes after 3. You're listening to SENZ.